Hello, my friends. Today we have part two of Joel's conversation with David McCall, host of the QTS Experience podcast and vice president of innovation at QTS Data Centers. And they discuss the present and future of AI and the good and bad possibilities for a society completely run on personal data. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. One of the things that came up with some of my guests recently that I thought was pretty cool was, uh, you know, Congress last year passed uh, the big infrastructure bill. And one of the areas of that that was really interesting was there is, uh, I think it's 65 billion, I might get the number wrong, but about 65 billion set aside for telecom infrastructure. And so I hosted a guy named Doug Money, who is a writer and an author, whose expertise among other things is telecom in general, but satellite in particular. But one of the things he talked about was a lot of that infrastructure is gonna go to fiber and how it really could change if we can get fiber extended out to the ag tech communities out in the rural areas. I have it and I am. Really? Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I, I've moved from Florida. So I bought a little farm in five acre farm in uh, Tennessee and um, built the studio on it. And uh, it has gigabit internet speed fiber. And it's like in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> he, he said, so just like what you're experiencing, he said, just imagine if you're able to roll tech out that can take advantage of doing things at the speed of light at in 98 to 99%. Little secret that a lot of people don't know is that there's a significant portion of even in America that doesn't even have 4G yet, much less real Wi-Fi or um, fiber or anything like that. It's not even heard of in their areas, but that this infrastructure could do that. And so now what does that mean for us? Does it, does it set 5G aside except for in very specific applications how does it change our world? How does it change the opportunity for autonomous vehicles? And you know, one of the one of the things he reminded me of, I haven't fact checked, but it sounds interesting. Um, do you know who one of the largest robot or autonomous vehicle makers in America is? I'm sure you've probably heard this, so it's probably not as fun. No, John Deere. Oh yeah, because all their tractors, you know, you you turn that thing loose. It's a perfect environment for autonomous vehicles because it's just a, it's fields or it's these other things. And um, you don't have to worry about public roads or whatever. It's your stuff or your space. And whether you always operate them autonomously or not, you can map it out and you can do all of this other stuff. And he said, when you can get fiber out there, there's so many more suite of opportunity for them. Have you had many telecom people on talking about future tech and telecom or? Well, I mean, I had um, Kyle on and we talked a little bit, um, Verizon CTO, mm -hmm. we talked a little bit about... Um, ultra wideband technology because like I, like I said, I'm kind of out and I'm an hour west of Nashville okay. and I'm probably like 15 minutes from like a town. Right. Um, so I'm kind of like out there. I happened to get the UW show up on my phone like a day or two before I talked to Kyle and I'm like, Oh, this is so cool. I'm going to ask him what it is. Right. You know, they test it out in certain cities, but it's super fast 5g and they just opened up a new end of the uh, spectrum. So that was pretty cool. We also got to talk about the crazy people that think that 5G caused COVID. <laughs> 5G caused COVID? Oh, you know, that's a thing. That's like a flat earth type thing. Oh, yeah. I did not know. That. Yeah. How do you get all this stuff? My filters must be working in my infrastructure because I'm not getting any of these. Honestly, it's mostly my wife's mom groups. And so, yeah, that's that was one of the things we talked about and how the electromagnetic spectrum works and, you know, that... It's not causing COVID <laughs> and some other things, but yeah. yeah, so we've got to talk a lot about that and telecom. I don't know what other telecom stuff. I mean, I've had people on that have explained to me how the packets of this zoom call make it from one location mm -hmm. to another. And I thought that was fascinating because I learned all about these different, yeah. these different hubs where information's exchanged and I've learned all about right. Uh, the underwater sea cables, and then the, they have the robots that will actually go yeah. fix the underwater sea cables, um, those giant fibers. So yeah, as far as communication, those those two are probably one of the most um, relevant ones. That's a really interesting about the sea. Well, there are a few things. One, um, so I, 
I've had a number of content delivery network folks. So they're from uh, experience with Akamai and some of these other really big organizations that help make sure that when you're watching Stranger Things out there at the soccer field in Clarksville, that you've got a great experience on your mobile device or or whatever, because it doesn't have to come from Nashville or Louisville or Memphis or whatever, that they've, you know, they've got this ability to deliver that near edge or edge. So it's really cool. And I only ever get like, I don't know, 1500 on Spotify to listen to it and 42 on YouTube to watch it. But when we, but I'm fascinated by it. I just, how all of that works, the future of applications and application development, how that works, the things that have not been solved in 5G, the potential's amazing. But there's so many engineering problems. Like a lot of times we think of 5G working like Wi-Fi works. But if that ambulance that wants to use a hologram using 5G isn't on the Verizon network, well, then they can't take advantage of the f Verizon cell that's there. They have to be on whoever's providing the service and it doesn't go very far and it doesn't penetrate buildings very well. And all of these, they're not impossible to overcome, but you, we've just got to work through the engineering problems that we're going to continue to, to work on. I think it's fascinating. On the other hand, you know, we've gotten a number of folks from, you know, MIT talking about smart fabric. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. It, I didn't even know this, but they're making clothing now, not just devices. I don't know where my Apple watch is, but not just devices, but clothing. Uh, in particular, um, it was Christina Chase, Dr. Christina Chase, who runs, started and um, co-chairs the uh, uh, sport gaming and data analytics lab at MIT and how they work with, whether it's professional sport or amateur sport, which are wildly different experiences on what they will allow and what data can be collected. Who owns the data? Do you own it? Does the team own it? Does the league own it? Does the stadium own it? H how do you manage it? How do you protect it? It's all this other stuff. But one of the things that came out of that was f absolutely fascinating to me was the fabric, not just the device, but the fabric. There are organizations out there making smart fabric to help you as a human being as you're moving, exercising, um, giving you almost feedback like a cyborg, like just all of that, but in fabric, not an exoskeleton. And just as we learn more and more about this stuff, on the one hand, I get anxious, well, who, what are they doing with that data? Who's got it and how do we secure it and protect it and keep it private? At the same time, how do I take advantage of this to live an outstanding, you know, the best life I can live? I didn't know about the smart fabric. I want to look into that a lot. Well, it looks like you're wearing smart fabric right now. We'll, we'll, we'll go with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think the smart fabric is is awesome. I mean, I remember years ago when people were trying to like somehow embed LED type stuff into fabric. I remember I've seen some of those types of, of clothes, but I haven't looked into smart fabric in a long time. No, she was, uh, she was talking about the evolution of smart fabric. And it, again, comes back to AI and data analytics and, and how these things are helping us to perform better. What's our experience while we're sleeping? What's our experience while we're exercising? And, and not just at the device level, but more and more uh, these unique things, but also how do they integrate in the world around us? How do they inform our decisions? We didn't get into it, but as I've talked to some other folks, I'm wondering, okay, but what happens when to get my company health care, I have to agree to download that information kind of like in your car today for insurance you know you get the discount today but when does it become mandatory that in order to get insurance from me i've got to see your driving habits yeah and um at what and you know today we st we have some of that because they go off at your credit score and your income and certain you know whatever the algorithm is the actuary tables to say oh somebody in these circumstances there are this kind of a risk what happens is it when we get more of that electronic data and it becomes more surveillance. You started earlier, said something that piqued my interest about 3D printing. Mm. And you, um, can you tell us a little bit about, by, by way of introduction to that topic, I've had um, Gene Bolin on, who was at the time chief scientist for an organization, went to NASA and said, we want to help you with um, new manufacturing 3D printing. And they said, you know what you really help us with is help us to print food. He said, food? They wanted to work with NASA because to 3D print organs, as you probably know, 3D printing is an additive process. And in order to do it, you have to have some sort of framework. Well, a lot of organs don't have a framework. There's, there's no way to 
create this organ and then pull a frame out of it. And in gravity, it will collapse. So they have to get it up to low Earth orbit so that they can print so there's no gravity and they can do the, that was the premise. And NASA said, yeah, if we're going to get a colony in Mars, we, we don't need advanced manufacturing of parts. What we need is food. Can you make it savory? Can you do it like this where you've got the chemicals and we just do it? I thought it was a really interesting thing. So that's got me thinking a lot about 3D printing and a wide variety of things. What's been your experience with your guests on the show? What are they talking about? Well, did they do it? Yeah, they um, they created it. Well, they're they're trying to. You know that NASA has um, these requirements. One, it's got to be edible. Two, it's got to be safe. Three, it's got to be light enough to you know with the hardware and the chemicals. Assuming those are table stakes, it doesn't have to look. It'd be great if it chicken looked like chicken or whatever, but it has to have two things, or it's not going to be a success. Taste of it and the texture of it, the look. Uh, you know, when there are, there are IoT devices, microwaves in particular, where they use uh, cameras along with um, this idea. I, I can't wait to see them combined of the 3D printing. But, you know, when you go to cook, the camera, not so much the temperature or other things, but a camera can tell you if you eat something, the algorithm will go back or the AI will go back and look at, okay, the camera watched the texture of this food change. And it can draw so many inferences from it. It saves all the barometric pressure, the time it cooked, the temperature it cooked at, what it looked like. And it can replicate using a camera and another device. It'll start cooking the food. It'll create the same environmental conditions and cook the food, adjusting for thickness or, or whatever the other variables are. So the chicken breasts aren't exactly the same or the bacon or whatever. And the camera will keep cooking until it sees that they appear to be exact same and assuming all other variables are the same. I'm like, wow, wait till we can 3D print and put that technology together. That would definitely be about human flourishing. Are they taking pre-orders? <laughs> Not that I know of. All right. I would probably be a good investment to bet on then because at my age and weight, I'm like, what the heck, let's just let it all go. I'll eat that all day long. <laughs> So you, you've had some 3D printing folks on, you and Adam? Yeah, so a um, couple of ones in that neighborhood. Uh, the 3D printing of houses was pretty cool. We I was on Zillow one weekend and I saw this house for sale and it was said like the number one, it was like one of the most popular properties on Zillow and it was 3D printed. Wow. And so I said, well, that's interesting. Let's go talk to those people. So we had them on the show. They literally built a massive 3d printer and they're like construction workers and technologists kind of came together yeah. and they 3d printed with cement uh, a house and then they sold it on zillow we have someone we're trying to coordinate right now to come on the show their organization prints schools okay. in third world countries in particular and they don't do it out of concrete and they what they did was um or what their big idea is one of the biggest barriers to success is education. You know, we've heard this, especially in the world of um, disruptive context of future work. If technology is going to take over menial tasks in the West, it's less of a big deal because we'll retrain. And we've done this all of human history where technologists at heart, human beings are, we retrain, we don't, you know, whatever, we move into other jobs. But if that, if there is very limited other things and you're in a different part of the world, that could be devastating. And so one of the things that this group is doing is they can 3D print in a few weeks, if not days, huts or schools out of um, recycled material and other material. And they are doing it in parts of the world right now that have a high solar uh, content. So they can put solar panels and these other things on them. It's this really cool little ecosystem. But instead of having to source all the materials for concrete, which may be much harder or, or these other things. And it takes a lot longer and there's a lot more complexity. It's expensive. Yeah, it's expensive. And so they set up very inexpensively, very simply the construction level, uh, 3d printer. And it goes out there and builds them a schoolroom in uh, not too much time. It's unbelievable idea. I love to see those kinds of things because it feels like technology in action that's helping human beings flourish. Oh yeah, for sure. And you're exactly right. The education is a huge barrier to entry, making education more widely accessible. It, honestly, it makes me really happy. I mean, look at the different 
countries coming online. If you go to Africa, woof, man, that country is just beaming with energy and they're, they're just literally everything's changing for them. And that's exciting for, for me, both in the fact that now we have more people for pushing technology forward. Mm. One of the things I think is pretty cool. And this also connects back to the, me having gigabit internet out here and Africa, let's put them together. Uh, I've gotten it. to talk a couple of times with Andela. Andela is a great company and they have places in Africa there. I think they're funded by Zuckerberg's foundation and a couple other um, philanthropic like type companies. They will go teach these communities how to program, they'll like open up a store or whatever, a school, and they'll start teaching them how to program. And then you can, you know, hire those developers and have them join your team and, and stuff like that. I think that that is fantastic because they get taught the best information, right? Mm. Like I've been around, I'm 34. You know, I, the first time I wrote a line of code was probably eight. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, I've gotten to see like the progression from that perspective. It's somewhat narrow, but I've, I've gotten to see it. And, uh, man, I have made so many mistakes and I've watched concepts come out and fail and others come out and succeed. And then everybody sort of figures out like, it's coming pretty common knowledge in the product community, how to develop a product. Well, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's not, it's not all like the wild west there anymore. Um, there are definitely proven processes to make good products. And so the fact that they're getting taught those first is really exciting because that's just going to make us go forward faster and have higher quality products in general. And, um, you know, adding more people to the global economy, uh, increases the wealth of everybody. And so that's, that's great for that. But I think that's similar to, you know, out here in, in Tennessee where I'm at, they waited 10 years to get internet. And when they got it, it was fiber, but it was the stuff that like literally was built last year. So this technology out in rural Tennessee is more advanced <laughs> likely than like some of the stuff in a major Metro city. Cause that stuff's got, you know, backbones that are set, like decades old. And, yeah. yeah. Super old technology that they've just constantly like retrofitted and swapped out and like figured out how to do it. Um, but this stuff is like state of the art, amazing, high quality, fresh lines just ran. And so, you know, there, there's some benefits um, because as these new populations emerge, whether it's like locally in our country and, and states or in places like Africa, they're starting with like the best available stuff. Um, and, and, I think that that is, is pretty cool because it's like us getting to watch the progression in real time. So let's use that as a segue to talk about future work a little okay. bit. I don't know why Tulsa, Oklahoma is stuck in my head. I'm sure I heard it a year ago or so, but I've got friends that have moved to Costa Rica. Mm -hmm. I've got um, folks that are going to communities like what you're doing in Tennessee. And these communities, many of them are very proactively building in this world-class leading edge infrastructure and saying, come live here and work anywhere you want. And when Microsoft's commercial meta gets rolled out and meta's personal metaverse and these other things get rolled out, you literally at the speed of light, you have access to all of these things, but you have a quality of life locally. This is what the traffic's like in Tulsa, Oklahoma, or our riverfront, or a cost of living, or you know, the commute is down the hall into your bedroom. But when you're looking outside, you're not looking at the smog of this city or the traffic and right? social problems of that city. You're, you're looking at, you know, here's this world that it looks like. And because we're this highly interconnected world and very few people are further than a couple hours from an airport that can get them anywhere in the U.S., if not probably one hop away from anywhere in the world. What a, what a quality life. In my own company, I've got a number of people that have retired from the Bay Area and moved up into Idaho or Wyoming or Montana or out of Boston into, you know, more inwards. And it's not that they're not anti those places. They just want a quality of life that's a different experience. And they've got the back end infrastructure now. And with the infrastructure bill, I think it's just going to get more and more exponentially rolled out. When you're talking to CTOs or CIOs, I know a lot of their focus is the products and services and how they're going to serve their community. But when they think about future work for themselves or for their constituents, what are the conversations that they're having and are they embracing this idea? Yeah. So future work conversations tend to lean around automation of jobs and what we're going to do about it and how it will impact us. As you mentioned earlier, 
well, humans have been changing jobs since the beginning of time, right? Yeah. That's just a natural evolution. What it could be different now is the rate at which those jobs turn over. So that could have a new sort of impact to us because of that. That is like a good area that we have government. Like that's like a good thing that we have government there. So loss of jobs and the rate at which we lose them tends to be the question. And how do we ease the pain of the transition? Like if it grows exponentially Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden, like we find ourselves here in three years and programming just became an automated thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Or at least it automated enough to have cause an 80% loss in those jobs. Right. Cause that's all you need. It doesn't have to be fully automated. It just has to be automated enough human in the loop right. slightly. Right. So at the rate in which we drop those jobs off and what will happen to our economies. And so those are some really big questions. They're hard because again, policy happens in hindsight, mm-hmm. right? So they see the problems big enough, like seatbelts is a great example. You see enough people dying in car wrecks, the government steps in and mandates the seatbelt thing, but for the auto manufacturers and then the laws on the road. So like, we're just in a point where it's going to be hard. And I encourage everybody to just pay close attention. Like, you know, you mentioned earlier, we were talking about content and accessibility and what kids can see. Mm -hmm. I think if anything, the advancement of technology has forced parents to be more involved with their kids. You have to be a better parent right? There's more things that they can get into, you know, in the seventies, they could get into whatever was in the neighborhood Mm -hmm. today. They can get into whatever's in the world. (laughs) Yeah. They can get into the dark web and have stuff shipped to them. You know what I'm saying? So I think one of the positives silver lining out of all of the potential difficulties of the advancement of technology is closer family units and, and better parenting I think that falls in line with like other views that I have. Well, let me let me ask you this. In the first industrial revolution. Yeah. So this is one of the things that Professor Allen and I talked about. So many people lost their job because their job was to physically pump water out of a mine. And a steam engine replaced them. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people picked cotton. Some of them slaves, some of them indentured servants, a lot of them just poor people out there. And we invented mechanization that went out there and replaced them or fill in the blank. We, uh, my buddy was digging, a, um, had to run a, a line to the side of the house. And at our age, we just can't get out there with a shovel anymore. So he went up to the big box store, hired a ditch witch and in 20 minutes had a line going from the curb for the water up to the house and then dumped the gravel in and whatever. So all of that automation or not automation mechanization in those cases, displaced entire industry. We used to cut ice blocks out of a lake and you had people whose jobs it was to load the ice into the back of a wagon. And then you had these big warehouses that stored the, like, oh yeah, we have so many examples of world like that. And in every single case, I remember listening to this podcast talking about margarine wars, about how margarine was the evil of America. It was funded, of course, by the dairy community and people were arrested and put in prison for years because they were subverting, you know, blah, all these other things or hemp industry by the cotton industry. And I, I'm wondering, trying to be my realist, not just a blind optimist, but it feels like from the day the rowers got pissed off because the drummer and the rower was like, what's that big cloth thing they're pulling up over the boat here? You know, what's that all about? A sail? How do we, how do we, when we look back and there's every generation does one of three things. They think they discover sex, they think they discover music, and they think they discovered the, you know, the tech that's going to end all things and our way of life is going to crumble. And it almost never, it certainly never come, you know, the human beings are still here and we're still figuring it out. We're still innovating. How do we, how do we driven by data, um, reconcile that. And I'm curious with the executives on, um, like I just, and I just want this, I know I'm rambling, but I guess one last point, I had Dan Vassar on, he's a supply chain guru, Kroger for many years. He's at racetrack now, a lot of experience in logistics and um, supply chain. And our conversation was around why, why is there such, especially in the food side, such massive supply chain. This is before there's stuff going on in Europe. And he said, um, People, nobody wants to be in the supply chain. 
We don't. We have a truck driver problem, not because of autonomous vehicles, but people don't want to drive trucks. It's not the government sending them checks where they just don't want to do it. Those jobs are menial tasks. You know, we would love to see automation or mechanization uh, come in or or make pizza boxes for us or do those other things because we cannot find people who want to do those jobs um, and keep those jobs. Um, but he felt like we're a long way from machines easily solving those problems. Is the tech there? Sure. Can we afford it? Is it in the near term? I've got numbers decades. for you. Yes. So I did a lot. I, I did a lot of research on this. We just recently wrapped up a multi multi-episode series on this. Um, there's no argument greater, I think, than like a hundred years. There, so all the experts that talk about this, no one I believe this is the cutoff. 80% of them are arguing between like 5, 10, 15 to 50 years, okay. like in the next 50 year range that we have tech um, tech that can be replace humans, uh, knowledge workers, just consciousness, these replication type mm-hmm. the concept. Um, and then I don't think there's anyone that's, that's, that's out beyond a hundred years. So this is definitely something we could see in our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. Um, from from the general consensus of the experts today. So when you say it's not just automation, it's that they're sentient. We're general, well, all, all you, general AI. All, all you need is just, um, I mean, what do we do as humans? It's pretty simple. I mean, we understand our surroundings and we take action and we learn from that action, right? I got people so, skills. Get my TPS yeah. reports from that fax machine to that fax machine. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, like... It, it, it will likely happen um, unless if we destroy ourselves first, that's also a possible scenario. But, you know, you mentioned earlier, like, you know, making, making good decisions based off of data. I mean, I think that, that happens so rarely as humans. I mean, we make most of our decision based off of emotion. Just look at how we spend our money on a national or global level. Right. It's crazy. Um, if we use data, we'd be spending our money very differently. Uh, we, we're just humans. And so we have to figure out, um, how to, how to, how to do that in the face of this changing technology. And we have to figure out like how to care for an entire population when their jobs are automated overnight. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have to solve these problems, but typically as as human beings, we don't solve these things until they're massive issues in front of our faces. Uh, but I would like to say the general conversation of automation and losing your job. Um, I am definitely rare, uh, being an entrepreneur, um, and in the sense that, um, and I've, I've, I've been trying to come to grips with it <laughs> because, you know, most people I run into are, are not mm-hmm. right. So like when something happens to me, my default reaction is ownership of it and how to get out of it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, their default action is like complaining about it. Mm-hmm. Right. So when, you know, I have thoughts like the following, um, you know, when people talk about job automation, like who, who, when you were born, walked up to you and guaranteed that you could work one job and that's all you would have to learn for the rest of your life. Like who told you that? Like, it's obviously there's some, and it's implied to some degree because of the society. And that's like, you see it happening. And so you think, Oh, it's going to happen to me, but there's like no one guaranteeing that to you. you. You know, you didn't get, you know, that's a um, generational thing that came out of yeah. the generation coming out of World War II. Before that, that didn't happen very often. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. It did to a lesser extent, at least in my experience, but to a lesser extent, it's for sure a thing of the Industrial Revolution from the late yeah. 1800s. So I think this place is a heavier emphasis. It's also, here's the thing. It's a beautiful thing for people who, um, who want to try and who want to put effort in. Right. Because if you take ownership and you, you pay attention to what's happening in the marketplace and you figure out how to bring value to others, you can stay relevant. Right. Mm. And if you can stay relevant, you have a job and if you have a job, you can provide for your, for your family and and so on and so forth. So, uh, I think all of this places more emphasis on individual ownership. And, um, I think that that's a good thing. Personally, I like it. I may have to talk to different (laughs) expand my circle of uh, CTOs and CIOs. It's certainly not as large as yours, but I, there's a lot of conversation about automation of, of um, tasks. You see that material handling, um, hmm. accuracy and inventory, and you know, you, a, a robot doesn't care. Uh, RPA. 
RPA. What's RPA? Yeah. Uh, robotic process automation. Yeah. It, you go into a company, I'm a consultant, consulting firm. I, I analyze data across your, you know, 10,000 computers. And I notice this group of people keep doing this copy and paste sequence and they're spending 400 hours a week on it. Right. And I go in there and create a little macro type deal and, and automate this process. And then you pay me for that. Um, that's a huge industry right now. It's right. massive. Plus, I don't, you know, that I was thinking about one of the things I liked about or that was interesting about the material handling was um, I, my liability for a robot to go up four stairs to get that box of spatulas and bring it down is none. Whereas a human being going up and doing that or whatever. But in, in my industry, for example, if I'm if I've quadrupled the size of my facility, which we have. Um, and I quadruple the number of cameras or whatever. I don't quadruple the number of people that are managing it, but the people didn't shrink either. It grew some percentage and we have no plans. There's nothing on our near horizon that says, hey, this is how this is going to significantly reduce. But I may have tech that's walking my roof looking for thermal anomalies as opposed to having a person do that all the time. And, right. and most of the people don't want to be on a Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia roof in the middle of the summer doing that anyway. And so I move them into another role. At least that's how we imagine it. And we have the, and I don't think we're being Pollyanna about it. Could that happen in 25 or 50 years or, or somewhere beyond the uh, immediate event horizon um, where it is completely displaced? I suppose it's possible, but doesn't feel uh imminent and so it surprises me that so many of the folks that you guys are talking to have a different uh perspective which just i think says to me i need to expand the conversations that i'm having what, what was the different perspective uh the ones that i'm talking to s would say yeah automation is happening and and things are going on but we we don't think that our what people will be doing will be shifting and um expanding or or you know maybe um changing but it's uh you know i don't have a bunch of people i don't have network engineers trying to respond to ddos attacks anymore i have yeah. a tool that responds to ddos attacks for example denial of service attack because it could it moves so you know it's networks against networks i don't have people doing that but i've never needed more security firewall or whatever people that are helping to manage write the rules help us to understand stuff it's we don't just turn that over to machines and ai although we have that um uh built within all of our systems and they're continuing to evolve and build them but we've got people that we've moved out of some of those more menial roles that we let systems take over or op route optimization or whatever um, but we've never needed more people in those specific roles. And so if CTOs or CIOs outside of my world are saying, man, in 10 years, you know, I, I'm just not going to have people doing those, any of those things that surprises me. Oh yeah, no, it doesn't surprise me at all. Um, all you have to do is solve one problem and you just have to solve the, how humans learn. And if you look at the advancement of GPT three over the past 10 years or seven, however long it's been in deep mind dude, we are close. Mm. We are like close. These models can do unbelievable things uh, relatively fast and it's speeding up significantly. Yeah. I, I was actually a little bit surprised too. I thought we were farther out. I, when I started, I remember the number I threw out, there was like a hundred or 500 years to them. And the, I got corrected multiple times. Right. I talked to somebody and it's a good episode out. And maybe you remember, I talked to somebody who interviewed the top 20 most successful, famous people, like the creator of DeepMind, like all of these super famous people. Who was it, Adam? Tom Tully. Write that down. Yeah, so that I got to talk with him as one of the several interviews I did on this subject. He had written an entire book on it. So yeah, the, the famous guy from Google who was trying to like replicate his dad and you know all, all of these popular people in this space. And he was... He was correcting me saying like, no, it's way sooner than that. There's only a, most people are like sub 50 years arguing. Is it five? Is it 25? Is it 35? Hmm. And I mean, that'll be an interesting point in time. So how do they get excited about coming into work? If there are these technology leaders and like, man, I'm not even my kids, if they want to follow STEM, why are we even encouraging to follow STEM? Go have them be a plumber or a electrician or whatever why encourage them to get involved in something that's going to be 
automated and replaced by a general AI device. I mean, if you can't beat them, join them, right? <laughs> like, cyborg like, it not, up. Cyborg it up, man. I tell Elon Musk, you know, put that Neuralink in. Let's let's mesh with them. So, <laughs> I, I it's a super interesting thing that we'll watch play out. Luckily, things um, they they don't happen fast in the sense of like days. You can kind of see something coming, you know, a little bit farther out. Um, I think it puts more emphasis, like I said, on ownership, on your finances. You can be smarter financially. Um, you know, I follow Dave Ramsey's uh, Financial Peace University. Yeah. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a fan of that. Learn, learn how to, you know, not have debt and have financial peace. Right. Um, all those types of things sort of help you stay calm and centered in the chaos that is the evolution of technology. But it sounds like it's a difference between disruption, which we've had throughout all of history disruption yeah. not just technology disruption but pandemic disruption war disruption natural event disruption this feels like it's we're making our own disruption for ourselves and it's not a disruption to where the river gets readjusted and it's got a new route but the river keeps flowing it's uh hey 80 percent of the things that we did you know one of the things that gives me i guess a, as an optimistic realist um I, I can't remember who I don't, I don't have my version of Adam, uh, on here. Maybe Adam can look it up while we're talking, <laughs> but, um, like 30 to 35% of the jobs we're going to need in the next 25 years aren't even invented yet. And yeah. those are going to be four people. And so I, I don't know my, it feels like, um, until this conversation, thank you, Debbie Downer, that the, uh, um, no, I can make it positive yes, real let's quick. Do it. You want me to? Yeah. Okay. So it's, there's just, we're not, when we're talking about all this automation, what we're talking about is, um, you, all right, go back to like Ray Dalio and learn some basic economics okay. and how humans exchange value. Yeah. Um, he's got great videos on it. He puts them out on YouTube. Um, but essentially we exchange value, you and I, yeah. right. And we use different currencies to exchange that value and we're exchanging, you know, time. Right. Um, and what we value as a society changes over time. Mm. And as things uh, evolve, so will how we spend money, right? Like all the jobs we have today, we weren't spending money on, they weren't valuable, you know, a hundred years ago. So if we understand this concept that when humans exist, they exchange through stores of value, different things, right? Based off of what they need. So that's one concept. We've got that over here. Now over here, we have this automation concept. So let's say, let's say we wipe out all engineering, uh, all, all software engineers that develop B2B software systems. Right. There's a lot of them, right. right? But that's like a specific niche. Let's say we've got some system that can, you know, replace them. Okay. So now you have tons of people out of work, right? And then let's say that happens subsequently in like two or three more industries within the next six months. Now you got a lot of people out of work. Okay. It will restructure and reorganize. Right because we are humans and we exchange value. So, so you should not think the sky is falling, but be prepared to get punched in the face because you can get punched in the face and knocked down. Um, but long-term, uh, it, it's going to be okay because we're humans and we'll exchange value with each other. Um, so that's why I'm not pessimistic about it. Mm. Um, and I would argue that it's been happening since the beginning of time. Um, the rate of which it's going to happen, I believe is going to increase mm -hmm. and the impact it's going to have on the society in general will also increase. Um, but you know, th there's, we've experienced this so many times and look at Detroit and the automotive industry and like the collapse of the families and, and everything there and the economy there, like this, this stuff has happened before. Right. It's just going to happen on a larger scale. So, you know, prepare for it, right? Get your financials in order. I think that's a super important one. Um, it allows you to have better career decisions, you know, uh, all sorts of things. And that's something that I've worked on heavily the past decade. Um, so the past 10 years, I've, I've done an enormous amount of work on, on becoming better with um, resource allocation. Mm. I don't even call it budgeting anymore. I call it resource allocation. <laughs> well, you've got me thinking, so I'm for sure going to follow up on on some of this, one of the things, so I, I think though, probably in the biggest picture, we're agreeing what we, what we may, uh, what I may have misunderstood is, um, 
it seemed like what you were saying in the beginning was, look, this is just, you know, here's the end and it's a hundred years out, as opposed to what I've now hearing you saying, which is the same thing I'm saying. This happened over and over and over throughout all of human history. The speed at which it's going to adjust may catch us by um, surprise if you're in a particular niche. It's hard for me sometimes to reconcile that because I've heard for five or six years that truckers are going to be, you know, out of a job and everybody I know with a CDL is being called, please come here. And I don't see big infrastructure being built to replace with autonomous vehicles out in point to point. It may, maybe, maybe it will happen. Okay, can I, yeah. can I put something out there? Yeah. Uh, we got electricity like 105 years ago or something, 105 to 110. Yep. Look at, look at what we're doing Jay. We're bouncing light around the world with underwater sea cables and talking to each other in real time. Like, that's insane. Yep. <laughs> it's crazy. Yep. We have, you know, I just bought a four terabyte hard drive the other day for our new video PC, like a, we had an extra yep. bay. And we Without even thinking about it for probably like a hundred bucks or something. $69. Yeah. $69. Yeah. Yep. Four terabyte hard drive. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, and you know, great grandparents, maybe. Don't say great grandparents. It's going to be very offensive, but probably about an hour after you were born, I bought my first hard drive. For yeah. my computer that I bought from American Express, it was 20 megabytes. No, it's 40 nice. megabytes. And my dad, working for IBM at the time for NASA on the shuttle, looked at me and said, uh, 40 megabytes, you've lost your mind. You will never need. <laughs> you'll never need that, right? And uh, so many stories I've had about that over the time. I agree. What I guess I mean is the surprise at, you know, back to subsea cables, 20 years ago, not even 20 years ago, 15 years ago, you showed up at a trawler that laid the cable and you had an army of people. Now you've got three people in the cabin because the trawler's all GPS controlled and it's, you know, all this other stuff. And you've just got really a couple nerds that are running the machine that lays that cable. And the most exercise really is at the end, the scuba divers who bring it up into whatever the pipe is in Cornwall, yeah. England, or down in Brazil, or whatever, pretty familiar with subsea cables. It, but it didn't, it didn't happen like they showed up and, you know, John and Claude and whatever had to leave the dock the next day. It was a 10-year thing, just like taxi drivers see their whole world changing over the next, or over the last 10 years. Um, and so they're all disrupted and having to do other things. And ironically, people are going back to taxis because there's a uh, more control and there are other things that they like now instead of the ride share and it will balance out to your point i i i don't know i think i like your idea of this redirection it's going to redirect i just don't know that it's going to be like all of a sudden if you're a software programmer you should be you know abandoning your profession uh, oh i don't think you should do that like i said like you just you just prepare for the worst and hope for the best <clears throat> you know like and and they're also solving the people who are solving this problem of making a machine that can think and learn similar to how humans can think and learn, they're like really putting a lot of resources behind it. And that's the only thing they're focused on. So like typically when we talk about problems, like we're talking about the, you know, the subsea cable laying the subsea cable and that took 10 years. So, and all these other little problems took 10 years to solve. And then, yeah, but what if they just solve the one problem of creating a system that can be taught like a human can be and replicate those actions? Well, once that system is created, now it's just got to go through a maturity process of being trained by some of the best in the world. Like we're already seeing it with the lungs, as you mentioned, you know, the AI algorithms, they just, somebody trained that, right? And it was the, some of the best minds that identified it manually. And then they put that and made a training data set. And then they have a model that can replicate it. Um, that is for the, that they automated that process of people's jobs, mm. right? And so those are like sort of like narrow things, but when they're focused on making this model that will be able to be taught like a human, once they do that, then it's like, okay, I, I think that that will happen before the exoskeleton concept happens. So I think that will happen in displaced knowledge workers prior to um, them having a case for it, mm. essentially to look like a human and walk around like a human and touch and feel and think like a human. I think that'll come later. Yeah. Um, Maybe they'll make it look like a teenager first instead of a human. So we're going to identify it. You don't have teenagers yet. You'll, it'll be funny no. in a few years. You'll be, know exactly yeah. what I'm talking about. Now, did you- They're slamming doors though. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they are. 
Hey, did you, uh, I know we're almost out of time, but did you come to this perspective because of the last year's conversations or is this more independent thinking and you're bouncing it up, uh, bouncing the idea across the people that you're having conversations with? Like where, where was it raised first? And, um, how did you land more firmly on it? Was it confirmed by people or did you confirm, did you, did you develop it yourself and then just verify it with your, you know, whoever your guests are? Um, I would say it's more the, uh, I talk to a lot of people and I start to identify trends mm. and then I start to think about why am I seeing this trend? And then I sort of run that by people that are smarter in that area. Cause we'll all as, as technologists, we'll all talk outside of our areas of expertise. Mm -hmm. And so like, you know, we can, you can sort of glean some insight. If you have a, if you stroll into an area of conversation like machine learning and you get some people's views on it that aren't always in machine learning and you start to notice a pattern and I'm like, okay, why do people think like this? You know, and then I'll start talking to other people or, you know, for example, um, I'll, I'll have interest. Uh, I'll see an article about something, some sort of rapid advancement of GPT three, mm -hmm. and I'll send a message to Yvonne and say, Hey, go find the smartest people in the world that know about this subject so I can talk to them. And then I, um, rarely do interviews like this where I'm like talking a lot. Most of my interview, like if you look at the voice spikes, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm talking sub 20% of the time and I'm just listening to people. And I'm just asking them questions and I'm trying to sort of wrap my mind around concepts. And once I wrap my mind around a concept, I sort of like let it go a little bit. Um, so that's a positive thing and a negative thing in the sense that um, it's harder to, to talk about the conversations because I'm my brain is mostly filled with the most recent conversations, Yeah, <laughs> you know, um, but I know it, that phenomenon. It's a, yeah, I know. It's a lot of fun though. And I'm always seeking truth and truth is, is hard to find. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I'm always trying to figure out what do the experts disagree on? What are they arguing about? But what is also at the same time, fundamental to the, to the art mm -hmm. that people don't really argue about. Um, so I'm just an explorer by nature and talk to these people. Um, sometimes I get random ideas. Like one, like one big one that I had that was random was I just, like woke up one day and the first thing that popped into my mind was what are the humans building? And I was like thinking about like ant piles. And I was like, if you walk up to an individual ant and you tapped him on the shoulder, you'd be like, what are you doing? And he's like, I've got, I'm doing this one thing. Cause I love it. Right. It's my passion or it's my, my, my drive right. It's what I'm dr driven to do is this one task. But if you step back, you can see that they're part of this much bigger picture. I'm like, all right, well, if you're an alien species and you're hanging out maybe on vacation on the moon or something, and you're looking down at the humans, what are we building towards? And that, that will help us help me understand where the economy is heading as an entrepreneur, like where you can make macro investments and like wide categories that, you know, will be bigger in 20 years or whatnot. So, you know, I, I get these very intense, uh, uh, concepts that I, that I study intent, like very intensively. And then I sort of, uh, feel a sense of conclusion and then I move on to the next topic. Um, so, you know, one of the things you also mentioned that, uh, about the autonomous stuff, the guy I talked to yesterday, mm -hmm. the underwater robots guy, um, it's Saab, by the way, the, the company Saab, yeah. um, the Swedish company. and yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They sold their car division years and yeah, years I ago, but that. yeah, they're like defense contractor and do, yeah. they do all sorts of cool yeah. stuff. Uh, so they had, he was telling me about this company they worked with, um, ocean something and what they have a ship, like a, like a massive ship. And then on this massive ship is this like, you know, maybe the size of a, uh, uh, like a garage, mm -hmm. right. It's like, it's kind of big. And that's like a robot that goes in the water and it can work on things. And the, sh the person will captain the ship from their home on sea and there's no humans on the ship and it drives it out into the deep ocean out in the middle of nowhere where there's some subsea cables and then they press a button and the thing gets dropped into the water and goes down and they do their work and their mission they're all on their computers back on land and then it comes back up and the ship comes back to port and they do the entire thing with never touching the ship yeah. in person that's happening today yeah we're familiar with that it I mean, don't even get, we don't have enough time to get into what's going on. I won't mention any 
companies. Um, but, you know, the things that they've done to weaponize things in how it's almost Ender's game, you know, uh, very similar. And they they leverage the, the deep sea stuff for space, very similar, you know, these harsh environments and how do we do it where um, we're not sending carbon life forms. And, you know, it, there's all these opportunities. I, I think it's like a lot of technology, you know, we can just like the conversation you were having the other day, um, we were talking about the ethics around some of this, you know, we, uh, tools are tools. Um, I am fascinated by, and I'm hoping that it helps the world where I send the ship out. I can do it from my home in Amsterdam or Stockholm or wherever I'm at, drop the machine down in there. It does its thing. Human beings' lives aren't risked. Um, the telecommunication is uh, fixed and patched and reestablished and, uh, and away we go. And hopefully that helps build a more and more infrastructure. A couple real quick things. One, have you discovered disc golf yet? <laughs> no, I, I mean, I see it and I know what it is, but I've, I've yet to play it. The Music City Open is happening in Nashville, not far from you, um, this coming up uh, weekend. If you haven't discovered the joy of disc golf, if you're an outdoor person. Are you going to be there? I, I can't. I was trying to get up there. I just have too many um, obligations, not the least of which is I start my new D&D campaign uh, Friday night, uh, April Fool's. Um, we just finished a one year where I'm the uh, dungeon master, totally nerdville. But um, so we're starting a new one. Yay there. I don't know if this will make the podcast, but why not? Anyway, I'm not going to be up there disc golf. So as you look at the next year, Joel, and you guys are just kicking around a couple cool ideas of guests or ideas that you want to talk about on your show. What are some of the ones that you're thinking about? So we've got advanced weaponry, um, nuclear technology. Uh, and nuclear technology is not connected to advanced weaponry, <laughs> but just the advancement of nuclear as a power source. It's getting a lot more investment and stuff over in the UK. It's becoming more popular now in the communities. We're looking at more hacking, uh, self-replicating robots, 3D printed organs, quantum batteries, the James Webb telescope. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And neutron rockets. So those wow. are some of the big topics we have coming up. I'm looking forward to that. And of course, we can find you at uh, the Modern CTO. Where else can they find all things Modern CTO and Joel Beasley? Yeah, so moderncto.io. If you're in the podcast app for Apple, you just type the letter CTO and we're the first result. You'll see a, it's a yellow background. You see me with the beard, but uh, Modern CTO. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.